Hello, and welcome to Square Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Justin Overbaugh, who has over a 25-year career within the combat arms, special operations, intelligence, and recruiting, with assignments overseas and in the U.S. He has multiple combat tours and served as a recruiting battalion commander from 2017 to 2019. He is the author of several publications involving intelligence and counterinsurgency to the Journal of Strategic Studies in Intelligence and National Security, and has a recent article on the recruiting crisis published by the Responsible Statecraft. These thoughts and opinions expressed in the program are of my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. All right, sir. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. You know, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to our discussion on the current recruiting crisis and challenges to the, the all-volunteer force. Touch on some of the points that you made in your recent article in the Responsible Statecraft uh, on this topic that I'll, I'll share in the notes of the podcast once it's, it's published. Um, my thoughts are, sir, you know, is this is a huge national security issue. You know, we've had multiple years of, you know, missing our recruiting goal, you know, short of about two divisions worth, right, of, uh, of, of personnel coming into the, into the Army, and all the services are, are struggling as well. Um, you know, this makes me nervous. You know, are we going to have to do more with less? You know, generally, you know, our Western style of, of war, right, is, you know, we bank on these short wars with min- minimum casualties. But, you know, as we see, that's not always realistic. You know, not every war is a quick shock and awe, you know, as we're seeing in the the war in the Ukraine that's uh, heavily uh, attritional based. But, uh, you know, before we dive in, sir, and talk about your, your article, I'll turn it over to you for any uh, opening comments. Matt, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about this topic. It is near and dear to my heart as well. Uh, and I hope your listeners um, gain some insights uh, as a result of our conversation. And I hope to learn uh, from you as well. Awesome, sir. I really appreciate that. Um, so before we uh, we dive into some of the points that you make in your in your article, sir, you know, just just curious as to you know what inspired you, you know, what what drove you to write about this topic and publish on this on this topic. It was actually a number of different factors, Matt. I think it started off uh, probably in two thousand eight on a deployment. It would have been my fourth deployment. I was serving as a military source uh, operations collector in uh, south uh, eastern Afghanistan out of the Shkin fire base. And I went out um, as part of a, a joint task force to uh, collect information, and we got in a really nasty firefight. And it wasn't the first firefight I had ever had, but it was the first firefight that I had had with uh, children. Um, my son, uh, my oldest son had been born a couple months prior to that. And as I reflected on that, that firefight afterwards, one of the questions I asked myself is if something had happened to me or if something was going to happen to me in the future, what would people say to my son to be able to console him that uh, whatever he missed out on having uh, Whatever he missed out on in not having a dad um, would have been worth the sacrifice that that he made, that that I would have made had something happened to me. Um, And I I struggled to answer that question, or I I struggled to come up with with what a good answer to that question would look like. We had already been in Afghanistan for some seven years now. Um, 
Osama bin Laden obviously hadn't been killed yet, but <clears throat> we had had a good long time, certainly longer than we had in World War II, to achieve some of our larger political objectives. And it didn't seem like we were making much progress on that. Um, that started me on a journey throughout the rest of my co career of really questioning what it was that we were doing as a nation with our military as we committed military forces to ostensibly achieve political objectives. Um, the, the article really came out uh, ultimately from a desire for me to share my thoughts with the American people as I approached the last six months of my active service. I felt like I owed them a perspective uh, on what has been going on, particularly as it relates to the recruiting crisis uh, as that has been in the news lately. Um, the American people through their tax dollars have supported me in, in really being able to live out my dream uh, in service to the nation. And it was a way that I felt like I could give back to write the article. In addition, I would also say my experience as a recruiting battalion commander uh, really got me interested in the force generating um, portion uh, of our military, something that most of us uh, don't think about a lot uh, while we're serving, unless we've had some sort of intersection with that part of the of the apparatus. And so all of those things kind of combined to drive me uh, to write this article. Oh, that's awesome, sir. Um, diving into the article itself, you know, some of the points that you that you make, um, you know, your thoughts are, you know, you know, why can't we meet those numbers? You know, what is driving the shortage? You know, a couple, you know, back to back years, right, of, of, of missing, you know, the 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 recruiting quota, um, you know, and all the services are struggling. But is there like approximate cause or do you see like multiple issues of, of why we're just not meeting the numbers? Ultimately, there are a lot of of factors that play into not being successful. But the argument that I'm trying to make in the article that I wrote is that it is ultimately due to a loss of trust that the American public now no longer has with the military that drives the recruiting crisis. Um, as you already mentioned, you know, in 2022, the army was only able to get 45,000 uh, on a goal, on a mission of 60. And then mm -hmm. last year, they, they finished only around 54,000 on, on a goal or a mission of 65. Um, and my, my colleagues within the, the recruiting world uh, are indicating that they anticipate falling at least another 10 short on, on this year's mission of 55,000. Um, so something is definitely, um, amiss, uh, and, uh, one of the reasons that I was really inspired to write the article, as I mentioned, there's a lot of reasons, but I kept on seeing the army talk about all of the cultural factors that were playing into the recruiting crisis. You know, the, the dwindling number of people that were actually qualified for service that, that ever smaller percentage of, of youth ages, um, you know, about 17 to 24, um, who are, have the cognitive skills, uh, have the moral and ethical uh, constitution, meaning they haven't gotten in trouble with the law. 
uh, and have the, the, the physical ability, meaning they don't have any medical disqualifiers that would enable them to serve. I think we're down to somewhere around 23%, 21% of, of 17 to 24 year olds who are not qualified to serve right off the bat because they don't meet either the moral, cognitive or, or medical requirements to join. Um, the, the military has also talked about, um, specifically the army's also talked about, well, young people, they don't, they don't know what the opportunities are. We need to do a better job of, of advertising, you know, all the wonderful opportunities. And as I, as I was hearing all of this over the last couple of years, it, it, it occurred to me that what the army was doing, what the military was doing was really blaming society for the fact that we cannot recruit enough people to fill our requirements. Um, and all of the things that most of the things I should say that were being talked about as reasons for failure were outside of the military's control. You know, the, the army has no control over how many uh, young people qualify for military service. That's a parents, school, community, society uh, challenge. Um, and, and so by continuing to focus on things, I thought the army was missing the mark. Because if you're, if you're saying that the reason that you can't accomplish something are variables that you have no control over, then you're not developing a plan for success. So it got me really thinking about, well, what did I think was the reason? Um, and I, I really hit upon this, this notion of trust, um, especially as I read um, Professor Stonka's book on trust and how he talks about trust being um, this, this, um, this notion um, about you know, bets on the outcome of the future. Um, and and it, it leads to a very reasonable uh, conclusion that young people, in order to make a choice to volunteer for the military, um, need to have a reasonable expectation of some sort of future benefit. Um, and as I began to look at all the things that the Army is failing to do, uh, as I talk about in the article, um, inadequate housing for soldiers and families, you know, the sexual assault problems that we continue to have, suicide rates, um, the inability to account for property and funds, uh, you know, even, even being challenged to provide a, a physical fitness test um, that serves our purposes. Um, I, I began to think that um, maybe the American people um, don't think that, um, or have a, a, a lower expectation that they're going to get benefits uh, out of service. Um, and I think that that's backed up by um, public opinion polls that indicate mm. that both uh, the, that the American public see both the institution of the military and its leaders um, as less trustworthy uh, than they did um, in the past. Um, and, and, and then when you, you know, as I mentioned, and that's not even the worst part of it. The worst part of it is if we're honest with ourselves, we, we don't do the thing that the only thing that we exist to do, which is fight and win our nation's wars. Mm. Um, if you take a survey over the last 20, 25 years and you ask yourself, has the employment of the U.S. military achieved the nation's political objectives? Um, which is the definition of, of winning in war, at least according to um, Professor Stoker. Um, I, I think the answer to that is clearly no. Um, and, and so, um, and, and what's very interesting about that 
dynamic as a cause of the recruiting crisis is that is actually something that the army and the military writ large can have an impact on, at least more so than the cultural dynamics uh, or what I call the market dynamics um, in the article. Yeah, yes, sir. I want to I want to get into the, you know, the the recent conflicts in the Middle East and see if that's impacted recruiting. But, uh, you know, to, to circle back on some of the points that you made, sir, um, you know, I think I think we're our own worst enemy. I, you know, I, I, I don't think we have a good control of of the narrative. And, you know, what I mean is, you know, airing out our, our dirty laundry, right? Like these, uh, you know, social media, you know, the WTF moments, um, you know, and I think like other services, they probably have, you know, social media, you know, accounts that are that are like that, you know, that air out stuff that, you know, that, you know, f- you know, things that are not going right in in the army, you know, such as, you know, mold in the barracks, right? Or, you know, soldiers having to do a police call, you know, all these like gripes and complaints. And some are, you know, you know, value added, you know, that are, you know, valid, you know, complaints and stuff like that. But the 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 problem is is that, you know, we're airing out this all this stuff, but you know, the American, you know, average Joe that's not part of the military is also seeing that. And, you know, that, you know, can help, you know, help or hinder, you know, recruiting, you know, mostly hinder recruiting, you know, if someone is, you know, seeing mold in the barracks or, um, you know, you know, other issues, you know, going on, you know, you name it, um, you know, that might turn that person off from, you know, wanting to want to a list. And I think also, you know, it's, it's a knife fight in terms of, you know, demographics, you know, trying to get the, the Gen Z, which is our, you know, our pool of trying to get those, uh, you know, those, those men and women into the, into the service, you know, all the services are, are fighting over such a, a small pool of Gen Z, you know, and I think dem- demography is, is destiny and, you know, we just don't have a, just don't have enough, enough people, you know, it's just a small demographic. Um, and I, and I think also, you know, we, we have this tendency of telling our, telling our kids, right? Like, you know, success, you know, the American dream starts with a, you know, college education, you know, that, yeah, you have to go get a, you know, a four-year degree in, in whatever in order to, in order to be successful, which, which is not, which is not true. Um, you know, you got folks that are, you know, out going out there, you know, getting college degrees and, you know, no guidance, no direction, no, no plan, you know, and then boom, economic, economics, you know, life, life, life happens. Um, and, and don't really have a good understanding of what the army, what the services, services can bring. Right. Um, that's just, you know, my thoughts on some of the, some of the points. Um, touching back on the conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, do you think that the nation is just tired, you know, war weariness, you know, do you think that's, that's impacted our, our recruiting, sir? I'm not sure if the nation is war weary or not, because I don't know what the nation writ large had to put up with during the last 20 to 25 years of war. I think it was, um, I think the argument can be made rather that our political leaders intentionally kept the public away from the war, kept their attention away from the war um, intentionally. Um, And so I don't know that war weariness is the issue. 
Um, I, 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 and, and of course, an all volunteer force enables us to do that, right? Unlike Vietnam, where draftees were forced into serving, and uh, the American public, the average American, could feel the reverberations from that conflict much more uh, acutely. Uh, an all volunteer force, um, largely made up of the children of, of previous generation of, of soldiers, um, doesn't have the same impact on the, on the larger culture. Um, and so I don't know if it's war weariness so much as maybe war questioning. Like, um, hey, I wait, why are we still over there? What's what's going on? Um, so that's just something that I that I haven't thought through fully, but that I just offer for consideration. Um, and maybe some people don't see a difference between war weariness uh, and war questioning. Um, yeah, but I would offer that that the American public are be, are beginning to question or ha- starting to question or are now really questioning like, Hey, what are we using our military for? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you on that, sir. Um, you know, I think, you know, some of the, some of the most recent things that, you know, have happened, right. I think are starting to, you know, our, our elected and, and appointed officials are going to start, you know, digging in and start, you know, asking some, some, some hard questions, you know, on what exactly are we doing over there? You know, what is our, what is our objectives? What is our, what is our end state? Um, so I know, yeah, your former battalion commander recruiting, sir. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of talk me through, you know, what were some of the challenges, um, that your recruiters faced, you know, in the, in the daily grind of recruiting. Um, and do you think some of those challenges are still ongoing today? Um, for your specific region, were they challenges just for that region or are they like, do you think there are holistic challenges across, you know, the, the recruiting um, you know, across the entire United States for the, for recruiting, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's challenges that are common to all for sure. Um, and then each region or area has, um, challenges that are specific to them or, uh, face greater challenges than the normal recruiter has to face just based off their particular market dynamics. Um, working here in the South, there are a lot more, um, individuals who have a propensity, um, to join than in some, some of the other areas of the country, say like the Northeast or, um, the West coast, which are exceptionally difficult markets to recruit in. Um, the, the army accounts for that though, by giving folks that have uh, markets with high propensity, higher missions. So um, everybody really faces the same struggle to find those individuals that we want to bring into our army. Um, and if you, if you break it down to the challenge that a recruiter has, um, if you think about it, a, a recruiter is, so about 60% of our recruiters, and this is my rough, um, anecdotal math, but as I surveyed uh, my recruiters over the two years that I was in command. I'd say roughly 60% to two thirds were voluntold to become a recruiter, meaning that they were selected for recruiting duty. They didn't have a choice. About a third said, yeah, I, I made the choice to come and be a recruiter. Um, and some of those did it under duress or under, under, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the least worst choice, but 
So right off, right off the bat, you have somebody who joined the military to do something, and now they're being asked to do something else. Um, and, and the recruiting function has some overlap with some other MOSs within the military. Um, but for lack of a better term, you are becoming an advocate and a salesman for the Army when you become a recruiter. And not everybody is naturally built to do that. Mm-hmm. So one of the very first struggles and challenges that recruiters have to overcome is they have to learn a new skill. Um, and some of them who may be natural introverts, have a hard time talking and relating to people who got into a certain career field in the military because they liked having their little um, task. I don't, I don't mean to minimize it, but their specific task, I should say. Um, that they were very good at. And now they're asked to go out into a community of people, um, very likely a community that they have no cultural overlap with and advocate for the army. Um, And and that's very difficult. And I think uh, I fell in love with recruiters almost immediately because it was evident to me uh, as a Lieutenant Colonel walking into this job, having never touched recruiting ever before. I was an ROTC guy I'd never seen the inside of a recruiting station before I became a battalion commander. Uh, it was immediately clear to me the, the uphill challenge that recruiters have on a daily basis. Um, so they're out um, hunting for the most qualified candidates that they can possibly find to put in the, in the military. And they're doing it in a society that's largely um, apathetic. Um, to the military. We're fortunate that in today's cultural context, people appreciate the military very much, but there's a, there's a difference between appreciating uh, service members and genuine interest in serving. Um, And you mentioned college earlier before one of the biggest challenges that we came across in our area. And I would imagine that this is common to all and maybe even more acute say in the Northeast is parents have an expectation that their children are going to go to college. And so enlisting in the army seems like not that to them, Um, even though the data show that if you join college without a good plan, you're very likely to fail, incur debt, knock yourself back many, many, many steps in life. Um, Parents today equate college degree with success or the beginnings of success for their for their child. Um, and, and so that, that is a major challenge for a recruiter to, to have to overcome. Now, the, at least up until recently, uh, an effective recruiter could do that. But we have to keep in mind that recruiters are competing for talent with everybody else in the free market. And now there are corporations like Amazon and Disney, I believe, for example, who are providing, I think, almost free undergraduate education to some of their employees, healthcare. And so the the benefits that the army has been able to offer in years past are less and less enticing because more and more people are offering them. Um, And I think that um, another struggle that recruiters have that goes underappreciated is, is they're not just going for numbers. They're also going for what we call quality Um, because as, as every single individual who, takes the ASVAB, um, or I should say every single individual who takes the ASVAB gets an Armed Forces Qualification Test score from that. Um, And and, and 100 is the highest, uh, or it goes from 1 to 99. Um, And recruiters 
are incentivized or rewarded for getting people who score higher on that test. And in fact, the, the, the military is limits the number of what we call cat fours and that 10 to 30 score that we can actually bring on. And so it's not just a simple um, problem of getting numbers. The recruiters are challenged and are expected to get the very best that they can possibly find, at least in terms of folks that initially qualify for and then do well on the, on the ASVAB. Um, a recruiter will oftentimes have to talk to 100 people before they can get um, somebody interested. And those 100, you know, and those 99 before the, the one interested person are all saying no to them. And that type of rejection, you could look at it as a type of failure, is very difficult for a lot of soldiers who are used to overcoming challenges yeah. um, to deal with. Um, and so th there are just a lot, and the work hours, uh, unfortunately, can be um, exceptionally difficult. You have to go where the talent is when the talent's available. Um, and so they're attending a lot of after hours events, weekends, holidays, um, air shows. I mean, you name the community event, there's often a U.S. Army recruiter there. Uh, and they're there doing that on behalf of the army and the nation at the expense of their family who is sitting at home wishing they could spend time with, uh, with their loved one um, uh, and, and whatnot. So there, there's a host of, of challenges that recruiters have, um, and it's an exceptionally difficult task. Yeah, yes, sir. My, uh, you know, my, my hat goes off, you know, to all the recruiters. That's it's. You know, that's a, a very difficult skill set to, to acquire, especially if you're, you know, an introvert, you know, being able to, to market the army and then also have like, you know, you know, some basic knowledge in, you know, what the army offers, right. And, you know, all the MOSs and, you know, all the intricacies of, of, of the army, right. You just be that salesman on, on behalf yes. of the army. That, that's gotta be yes. extremely, extremely difficult and, you know, not everyone has that, that natural ability, you know, that extrovert, you know, to, to do that. Um, and, you know, yeah, some people are voluntold to do that. So it's even more, more difficult. And I know the hours are, hours are grueling and, you know, your weekends, nights, all that. Uh, you know, I, I, I get that. Um, I have a, I have a buddy who was a company commander, uh, recruiting company commander and, um, He'd tell me some of the some of the stories of, of trying to you know talk to the parents, talk to like the superintendent, the principals, you know the board of ed presentations, stuff like that. Um, and he was up in the up in the northeast, and um, you know it was a you know a, a knife fight. It was a struggle to to get numbers, right? And um, you know he was telling me that you know if he was down in down in Texas or down in the Southeast, you know, the propensity to serve is, you know, far greater, right. You know, cause yeah, up there in the Northeast and, you know, I'm, I'm from the Northeast. So, you know, yeah, the family guidance counselors, right. They're just drilling India that you got to go to college. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. You know, the army. Yeah. The service. No, that's no, you need to go to college. You want to live the American dream, you know, go get that four year degree, you know, but I don't know how many history majors right. we need, need in the, you know, in the U S and, and this is coming from a history major himself, you know. Um, but you know, one of the ideas there, that there's I, a short I, video. Yeah, yeah sorry. Ahead, there's ahead. a short video going around on the on. There's a short video going around on the internet. Um, you can search for it on YouTube called "Success in the New Economy," and it really breaks down um, 
and it was it was new a couple of years ago, but it really breaks down kind of the trends amongst um, college education and and really shows how if you're more propensed, say, for trades, you are much better off not going to college. And I think that 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 was one of the messages that we tried to to push was was simply that, yes, we all have it in our mind. I mean, that's what I had drilled into my head. When I was a young person, I must go to college. That is the key to success. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it's becoming very clear, or it should be becoming very clear, that that is not the case. But that is still a message that is being pushed. Um, and you're absolutely right when you when you live in some of these areas like the Northeast um, or, or you know the West Coast, um, um, larger urban areas. Um, that, that is something that, that recruiters really have a tough time with, uh, overcoming that challenge. Yeah, yes, sir. And, you know, I, I was home for the holidays and there's, you know, I was having some conversations with some folks, you know, you know, and, uh, kind of the summary is, you know, Hey, uh, yeah, we, we support the troops. We support the service, you know, thank you for, you know, being in the military, but, uh, I just don't support my, my baby boy joining, you know, they're going to go to college, you know, and then, no matter, right. uh, you know, what I would say would, you know, would change, change their mind. Um, but you know, the, right. the, this like war gaming, this idea that I had with, you know, with my friend was, you know, if, if the Northeast is, you know, just you know, struggling to make numbers, right. And the Southeast is, you know, they need more recruiters because the propensity to serve is just so much higher is, you know, what if we just surge in the Southeast and you, you know, you reduce the recruiting in the Northeast and I don't know, maybe like one station and I don't know, Syracuse, you know, for the entire state of New York. And you just take all the recruiters and bring them all down to, you know, whatever, whatever state in the Southeast. And, uh, you know, you know, it's a great idea, you know, but it, you know, Congress would not be for it because it doesn't capture all of, all of America. Right. Um, but you know, just something to, well, something this to is float the, out there. The, these are always things that we would we would um, turn over in our minds and, and in conversations with one another because everybody in recruiting thinks that somebody else has it easier than them. So the Northeast thinks that the South is easier because the South has higher propensity. Um, the South thinks the Northeast is easier because they don't have such a large mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you hit the nail on the head. We have to recruit from all corners and all segments of our society. Um, and, uh, and so those types of ideas ultimately won't work out because they won't meet, um, the guidance that we've been given, um, from our elected, um, our elected leaders. Um, and, and you could even look at it in other ways as well. You can segment the population into race or gender, and you could ask, you know, if, if a certain, um, ethnic group is harder to get, why do we just not worry about it? Um, why don't we just get the group that's easier to get? Um, well, and, and the answer to that is, is obviously, well, the, the military wouldn't look like, you know, what our, our, our political leaders say they want it to look like. So um, a lot of those ideas um, won't work um, simply because it doesn't create the force that, that, um, that we say that we want. Yeah, yes, sir. Um... This is a good point. I, I, I want to touch up on the, the compo two and three, get your thoughts on some of the, you know, recruiting shortfalls for the, yeah. for the reserve component. Um, I understand, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling, struggling too. Um, 
you know, the strategic decisions of, of the past of, you know, post Vietnam, right. Of making a, making a total, total force. You know, I, my feelings is that we don't really have a true strategic reserve. You know, we have like a, an operational reserve where we plug and play and, you know, we use the reserves, you know, tremendously, right. They're not just, you know, the one weekend, two weeks, uh, two weeks a year, but they're used, you know, a lot, the plug-in gaps in active duty, you know, to, to you know, go forward and deploy, you know, you name it. So I was just wondering your thoughts on, you know, readiness concerns, recruiting uh, concerns for compo two and three. Did you see any shortfalls, you know, when you were uh, in battalion command, sir, or, you know, any, any thoughts on, on that? Yeah. And, and I think it's particularly relevant because the three soldiers that we recently lost, were they not all reservists, I believe? Yeah. They, yes. Yes, sir. They were. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so, so I will say, uh, compo two national guard, um, the, um, we did not recruit for the national guard, the States, uh, national guard handles that. Um, so, uh, my battalion, um, and all the U S army recruiting command, USREC battalions recruit for active duty and reserves. Um, and there were shortfalls in reserves just as there was in the regular army, or I should say there are now, um, we were fortunate to make our reserve mission, uh, every time. Um, but those, the reserve missions can actually swing a lot more wildly, uh, from year to year, um, based off a host of, of factors, but you will know a lot more about this than I do. Um, but it does appear to me that you are correct in that, um, I'm not really sure how much strategic reserve we have when we do rely on the other components so much, uh, simply to achieve the, the baseline mission. Um, I guess the question that, um, uh, well, before I, before I pose a question, uh, I would say I have seen that the National Guard is, is struggling to actually pay the bonuses that are due to the soldiers um, in their, in their um, ranks um, and specific to some recruiting programs. And so that, the, the news of that, with the reality of that and the news of the reality of that certainly is not going to help uh, the National Guard in any way, shape or form meet their recruiting goals. Um, but, the, you know, that fits into the entire argument that I'm making um, is that the, the, the Army is not living up to its obligations and that is seen and that breaks trust. Um, mm. And so I guess I'll wrap it up by just saying from my perspective, whether it's active duty, National Guard, or reserves, the recruiting challenges all stem from a lack of trust, um, that the American people do not trust uh, those organizations to do what they say they're going to do. Um, and so that makes enough of the population think twice about uh, before, before committing to join. Yeah, yes, sir. So... You know, trying to get your thoughts on you know how do how do we solve it, right? Um, how do we get recruiting back in the right direction? You know, how do we convince you know young Americans to join the service? Um, you know, you posted some things in in your um, in your article, sir. Just what are your, what are your thoughts? How do we how do we turn the ship around? Yeah, so I, I don't have any good easy answers, um, unfortunately. 
as I was writing the article, I thought a lot about actually marital infidelity as an analogy. You know, when trust is broken in a marriage, um, the only thing that gets it back on track is hard work and recommitment to the relationship. Um, and the spouse who was cheated on is not interested in words that come from their, their loved one who was unfaithful, right? They're looking for actions that back up the, the recommitment that's been made to the relationship. And so I think what the American people are going to have to see from us are actions and not words. Um, I think our, we have allowed our words to become um, nearly worthless. Um, and I mentioned in the article, you know, uh, this, this, you know, the only thing I can describe it as is this baffling inability to be honest with the American people um, as laid out in um, like the New York Times or the Washington Post's um, Afghan papers. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, you know, the years long, the decades long uh, surveys that that revealed over and over again, uh, for example, in Afghanistan, that we knew that we were failing the whole time. And we would say that to each other. But when it came down to sharing information with the American public, the, the refrain from all of us was, well, we're making progress, we're making progress, right? And we were, and we told the American people we were making progress right up until the point that it was manifestly obvious that we couldn't make that claim anymore as we're running out of Afghanistan um, in what was it, uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that the American people are less interested in what we say at this point, and they're a lot more interested in, in what we're doing. Um, and and I, I did mention um, a, a couple things that I think that we can do. And, and one of them uh, I laid out um, with my uh, friend and mentor, Professor Leo Blanken from the Navy Postgraduate School in an article that we, we co-authored recently. Um, and I should say I co-authored with him because he was the much more capable of the two of us. Um, but we recommend that... Um, American senior American military practitioners have much more um, frank and honest conversations with political leaders about what can actually be accomplished with military power. Yeah, um, because it seems that um, we argue in this this paper, um, um, and it's called distinguishing principled beliefs from causal beliefs in American foreign policy. It's in the Journal of Strategic. Uh, security. And we argue that, that there's these two types of beliefs, principled beliefs, which are um, essentially, you know, thinking about what is the right thing to do. And then causal beliefs, which are, you know, how do we do the right thing to get the, the outcome that we want? And we argue that we've conflated those two types of beliefs uh, to a point where we believe that, um, you know, doing things like spreading democracy or, uh, you know, enforcing universal human rights or environmental protection or peacekeeping uh, are, are, are things that we believe in because we believe that they're right. And we also believe that enforcing those things will work to achieve our political goals. Mm. Um, and it, it seems very clear that, uh, that that is not the case. And so we advocate for senior military leaders having, you know, brass tacks conversations with political leaders 
and challenging political leaders on, hey, what what do you want to achieve? Um, what are the ways in which you think it will work to achieve? And, and how do those, those are the causal beliefs. And then how, how do our values, our principled beliefs, how are those going to constrain us uh, or limit us? How do we have to account for those in achieving our political objectives? Um, that, that's one way that I think that we get at it. That, that may require a little bit of changing of civ-mill relations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, I'm not an expert on civil-military relations, but if I were to conceptualize it right now, I would say that it, if something is not illegal, immoral, or unethical, and the civilian leadership tells us to do it, then our response to that is three bags full, right? Uh, we're we're going to go do it. But I think as senior military leaders, we have to start asking ourselves if it's at least um, ethical or moral to say three bags full when we know full well going into something that it's not going to work or we should know full well. Um, And that that may be areas for future study or further study Um, does you know, do we require a slight change or modification? Of course, always I would advocate for civilian control in military. I'm in no way, shape or form saying that that aspect should change. But, um, you know, we, we've done it in Vietnam. We've done it in Afghanistan, Iraq. We, we have a track record now of thinking that we can apply military power to solve problems that may not be um, suitable for a mm-hmm. military solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at what point does a moral and ethical, say, you know, senior leader, general officer go to a politician and say, maybe there's another way that we could achieve these objectives because I can't in good conscience, uh, lead an effort that you're, that you're asking me to lead. Um, and so, um, it may require public uh, res- resignations or, or something to that effect. But I think that's certainly an area at least that could be examined for change. Um, you know, in the way that we treat those officers that do, of course, there's a very famous um, instance at the beginning of the Iraq war where a very senior military leader uh, told um, civilian political leaders how many soldiers it would take to secure Iraq. And, and mm-hmm. of course, that person was yep. um, roundly criticized and then sidelined. Um, so, um, you know, that's not, that, that solution is not an easy solution, but, um, I think it's one that it would be useful to take, to take a look at. And then there's others too, you know, um, you know, are professional development models for senior officers, correct? You know, do, do, do we need the joint time, you know, or what type of joint time do we need? Um, there's been some recent criticism on, on, on how we progress our officers to senior leadership. Um, looking at um, incentive structures for senior military leaders or all military leaders, you know. Um, uh, Professor Leo Blanken and, and Professor Jason Lepore have written a great paper about um, military incentives or, or incentives in military decision making and how once military practitioners become unclear about what the political leadership wants, they revert to the, to their own political self-interests or their own professional self-interests, I could, I should say. So, you know, you think about, you know, the career of a military officer over the last 25 years, um, you know, 
how many of us went down range and when we were done, we were told that we were wild successes, but we really couldn't show anything for it or we didn't have to show anything for it. Yeah. Um, it was just the fact that we went and came home. That was a good thing. And it's like, well, what were, how did the actions that I took as a military professional in a combat environment lead to, uh, you know, achieving a portion of some political or strategic goal? Um, well, the, the answer is they clearly didn't, <laughs> but people got promoted and, and, and people moved up and people got successful jobs outside the military. Um, and so that's, that's another example that, you know, we should be looking at these incentive structures and asking ourselves, are we incentivizing our military practitioners to achieve the objectives that the political leaders set forth? If indeed the political leaders even set forth clear political objectives. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, th th those are, those are not easy, like go on a single slide, good ideas that, that people talk about when, um, when they talk about how can we improve recruiting, you know, they're not some slick new social media technology, or they're not the standard, like, well, more money in people, because that's the answer for the military. Whenever we have a problem, right? More money, more people. Um, I, I think, I think it takes, a, it's going to take a lot more than that. I think it's going to take uh, a public reckoning uh, for what has happened um, and uh, some very different behavior and some really, really deep soul searching as to, um, what it is that we exist to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, we are, we're like the handyman, right. Of, of foreign policy, you know, for the, for the U S you know, the military will, will, will do it all, you know, but there's other elements of power, you know, in, in dime, is it, you know, is the M the, uh, the most appropriate response, you know, for whatever that, that objective, whatever that situation is, you know, could, should we be looking at diplomatic, you know, should we be looking at the economic, you know, but I feel like it's just military is the solution for, for everything. And then that results in, you know, you know, burnout, right? Like, you know, take like, to, take like COVID response, right? Like you got, you know, states that are running short on, teachers and you know bus drivers and you know let's immediately you know provide a, a military solution to fill fill those gaps and i'm not saying that's just the wrong thing it's just the you know example that, that comes to comes to mind right away um but you know that's just going to lead to to just burnout you know just using using the military for for whatever you know whatever the the mission set is um and, and i feel like you know, we're going to, you know, we're just going to keep doing more and more with, with less, you know, because no one wants to say, say no, you know, right. You know, we're just going to continue to, to Charlie Mike and, and, and move forward. But, you know, we are, you know, you, you bring, you, you bring up, a you bring up a great point, Matt. Um, and I, I think it, it's something that I came across in writing the article. And that is, you know, what are we for? And, and of course, a military is always a great reserve of manpower in times of crisis. You know, I remember when I was a brand new lieutenant, um, you know, a bunch of my fellow uh, teammates in the 101st got sent out to Montana to fight fires one summer because it was ju it just overwhelmed the other federal services. Um, and, and those are could all be discussed as, as totally legitimate. But when I look at the at the motto of the U.S. Army, this will defend, right? And I look at the Army's mission statement, you know, to fight and win the nation's wars. Um, and I juxtapose that with, say, a, you know, a, a speech by the um, 
recent, recently departed, um, not current, but recently departed chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about the military needing to, you know, uphold the international order. I see an incongruity there. Um, is the, is the, does the military exist to hold up this, this um, rules-based international order? Or does the U.S. military exist to defend our nation? Are those two things the same thing? Is there overlap? And how does the American public feel about that? Does the American public know that they're sending their their sons and daughters into the to the service to uphold uh, the rules based international order and all that that means in terms of um, a globalist perspective um, and mm-hmm. you know. American wages over the last 30 to 50 years? Um, or, or does the American public think that, no, that their sons and daughters are joining the U.S. Army, for example, just to defend the nation? Um, I don't think we've answered that question. And I think that's a question that needs to be asked and answered by by the United States Army and the other branches as well. Um, because it, as I listen to our senior military leaders and our political leaders, I would say that they would say the military exists to uphold the, inter- the rules-based international order. Um, but I think that if you ask the family member of the majority of the, uh, of the people who serve in uniform, they might not even know what that is. Um, yeah. Or they might have an expectation that, no, my, my son, my daughter, they're defending America. Um, so it just, just, just to your point, I think that's another dynamic that needs to get fleshed out um, at very senior levels as well. Yeah, yes, sir. And, you know, this isn't a question question necessarily for you, sir. But like, I always ask the the rules based international order. Like, what exactly does that even mean? <laughs> you know, um, is it really an order? You know, we got a whole bunch of conflicts that are across the across the world. Or is it really a really really an order? Right? You know, what is what exactly does that does that mean? Um, you know, and I'm always you know I'm always curious. You know, like what what do we have? in you know y country with you know x x capability right and you know what is our end state or objectives you know to you know to make z right like x is our capability y is the country z is our z is our end state you know just try to figure that out there was a interesting story um that a uh a national security advisor to a to a current senator he was he was telling me this telling me the story that um in this in this broadening seminar that i was i was participating in and he was telling me the story that he got tasked to give a briefing to all the elected congressmen in that state on, on Afghanistan. And this one particular congressman kept canceling on him. You know, he was you know, preparing for this brief, you know, was getting on the schedule, and then all of a sudden, you know, he get canceled. And then finally, he got a hold of this, this congress, congressman and asked him, you know, hey, sir, you know, do you, do you, want, you know, want this briefing? And uh, the congressman said, "No. Uh, the reason why I don't want this briefing is because the you know the people in my district they don't ask about it, so I'm not going to ask about it. You know. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. the people don't people don't know, you know, then they're not going to hold our right. officials accountable for for this for our foreign policy. And, and that's why I think that um, international relations education should probably be required." Um, it's something that I, we have four boys, um, who are, uh, high school, middle school and grade school age. 
And I'm talking to all of them about international relations because it has such an impact on what we do as a military, yet a lot of us military practitioners don't have a really good grasp of it. And I don't pretend to have a great grasp of it, but you asked earlier about the rules-based international order. And, 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 a, and a quick Google search will give you, you know, a, a decent starting point at it. But one way to look at it is you could break it down as this, this rules-based international order has um, kind of two predominant um, objectives, one being um, unfettered global free markets and the other being democratization efforts that are achieved through militarized nation building, right? So it's free markets and democracy. And the, and the, the rules-based international order are all of those supranational institutions, United Nations, World yeah. Health Organization, yes, sir. Um, you know, that, that exist to provide this structure of cooperation that ostens where ostensibly everybody can, all boats can rise um, through cooperation as opposed to the, the old realist perspective, which was, you know, uh, everybody vying for um, uh, more power uh, and to be more powerful than, than the next. Um, and so uh, I, I would say, you know, another thing that spurred me to write this uh, article was when I got to the Navy War College for Senior Service College in 2019, everybody there was, I shouldn't say everybody, the vast majority of instructors there who came from military, State Department, um, other parts of the, uh, of, of the government, you know, held to this belief that the way to, to, to get good or the way to get good outcomes was to continue to, to, to enforce this and grow this rules-based international order. But it was very clear to me that that model was not working. Um, and so it, it might be something for you to consider in a future podcast is especially um, in your in your field of force management is, you know, if, if we're supposed to build a force um, that can handle these threats, what exactly do our political leaders, what are they thinking when they think about threats? Um, because ensuring that there's unfettered global trade is not the same thing as defending the American people against some sort of invasion or attack. Does that make sense? No, no, it absolutely does. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, it's a good recommendation and I, I you know, I'm definitely going to go, go down that, go down that road. Um, I think that'd make a very fascinating, uh, episode, but you know, yeah, the rules-based order, you know, I, I, I get it from, you know, the, the end of world war two, right. Bretton Woods and, and all the Yep. All the institutions yep. that were built up after it's basically, you know, we built this economic order and it's, you know, us versus the Soviets. And, you know, you can trade with whoever you want to trade as long as you side with the, you know, the, the Western, you know, the, the U S and, and the NATO. And we write your security policy because, you know, Hey, you're going to turn into cannon fodder <laughs> against the, against the Soviets. You know, it's kind of oversimplifying that putting it in map legal terms, but, you know, getting right. back to, right. you know, like, to the, to the American people, like, you know, what does, uh, you know, what does, uh, Yemen have to do with, uh, do with America? You know, how do you, how do you explain that to the average, average person? Right. You know, like it's absolutely, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a hard, the American question. people do have a role 
it, it is. And the American people do have a role in this. You know, the, the, the solutions or recommendations that I offered for consideration earlier were kind of what the army or the military, the government can do. The American people have a role in this as well. Um, and, and I'll point to a quote from that's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. And he says, you know, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And so I think as, as an American society, we need to ask ourselves, what, what is our nation? You know, is our nation still that, um, that aspirational, uh, shining city on a hill? Yeah. Um, or do we now believe in a different narrative? Do we believe in a, in a, in a, a 1619 type narrative where actually, uh, our, our, our society is corrupt from the founding? Um, and, and because I, I don't see, um, a lot of people signing up outside of being economically destitute, um, to fight for a nation or a group or a community of people that first off that they cannot define and mm -hmm. second, that they don't see as good or worth fighting for. Um, so I, I think that there are, there are some questions for the American people to, to ask themselves as well um, when it comes to that. No, that's a good point, sir. Very solid. Um, I know we're throwing some money at the problem. We're throwing people. You know, that's uh, you know that that's that's the army way, right? To try to solve solve the solve the problem. Yep. Um, some of the changes that we've implemented. Um, is there anything that you know are you think that are good? Do you think it's you know helping helping the issue like putting a band-aid on on the wound or you know actually we're stopping the bleeding here you know what are your thoughts um i can't say yes simply because as i mentioned earlier um my my teammates who are still in the business are indicating to me that um after about uh, four months uh, in the new recruiting year they're projecting a you know a significant shortfall at the end of the year um, and we probably won't start seeing that in the news maybe until another couple months, but, um, I'll, I'll go with a results based answer, right? Um, if, if we were doing something that was working, then we, it would be working. Um, and I don't see that anything that we're doing is working. So unfortunately I can't, I, I, I don't have any good news, um, in that regard. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. And, um, I think one of the things that's, that's positive, you know, I, I do like the soldier prep prep program. I think that's a, that's a good news story, you know, to, to the, to the soldiers that, you know, they want to be there. Right. And I know there's maybe some academic challenges, some PT challenges, but, you know, I think that's a great investment, you know, to work with those, to get them, you know, to the standard that, you know, we need them to, to be at, um, so I think that's that's positive, um, and, I, and I think that's a good thing on on the army. Um, Matt, let me let me challenge you. Let me challenge you on that. Okay, sure. Um, just just for sake of converse, just for sake of conversation, uh, you talk about it being a good investment. Um, if we can move, how much money do you think we should spend to move one recruit from not qualified to qualified? Oh. In other words, at what point do you think it's worth ten thousand? Is it worth twenty? Is it worth thirty? Can you can you and I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you? Yeah, a, sure. Would you be able to put a number on that? 
Yeah, I don't know what like the figures are, but uh, you know, like what exactly are we investing in terms of like what's you know what's what's budgeted, what's been programmed into this to this program? But um, I don't know. I'll just throw it at, like I don't know ten ten thousand a recruit. I don't. Yeah, and and I, and I think the numbers might be that, um, and I'd have to do the calculations. But at least according to my research, the Army estimated it invested over one hundred nineteen million in the future mm. soldier prep course last year. And they claim to have gotten 8,800 recruits out of it. So um, <clears throat> that's, that is potentially a bright spot, but I'll, I'll also caution your, your audience. Um, think about what that is. That is shipping, shipping folks from wherever they recruited across the country to Fort Jackson, South Carolina to get their academic or their PT scores up just above passing. Mm -hmm. So uh, now in, in the individual case, it's an amazing story and it's a great, it's a great story, right? Because there are going to be soldiers who are, who are exceptionally valuable uh, contributors to the, to their teams as a result of that program. I'm, I'm not discounting that. But at scale, when you're looking at solutions to problems, what you've done there is you've 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 probably overrepresented um, mid to low quality numbers in your overall recruiting pool, and that matters because the smarter people take the training better and faster. Um, and if you're starting to, and I'm not saying that this is happening, but it would be a, a great area for further research is. So the future soldier program puts, or, or the, um, the prep course puts a lot more people in, but where do they sit on the overall, you know, bell curve of, of, of trainability as it, as it relates to ASVAB scores. So, um, I think the army certainly does want to say that that is a good news story. Um, but I'll just, again, just caution your listeners that it doesn't help us overcome our shortfalls. And I do, I am concerned about what it's doing to the overall quality talent pool uh, of folks coming in, if that makes sense. No, it does. Yes, sir. And that's a, that's a, that's a solid point. Um, so, you know, moving on, sir, conscription, what are your thoughts? You know, this is like blasphemy, yeah. right? This is like taboo. You know, what if we just did away with the all volunteer force and we just went to conscription? You don't, you would you, would that solve some of our problems? you know, or, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, um, let me ask you a question about the last part of that question. Would it solve our problems? Let's define our problem. First of all, mm. what is our problem as, as you see it? Is our, is our problem just a number? We need a certain number of people because conscription will solve that problem. Yeah. But what problems does it create as a result? I guess would be the question that I would ask, the rhetorical question that I would ask in, in, in response to your question. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, there's obviously calls for it. Um, I, I think that a lot of people think that it's a really good idea. Um, my opinion, my personal opinion is that it is a horrible idea. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think that it can be shown that conscription armies do not perform as well as our all volunteer force has. 
So from a performance standpoint, I would oppose it. I mean, imagine, you know, you've led formations in the army uh, for years. Imagine having half or 75% of your formation uh, forced to be there um, and how that would change the dynamic of your teams. Um, and then I just question it on, on moral ethical grounds. Um, I don't believe that the state owns the, the people of the state. Um, I believe that the state is in, is in contract with, for lack of a better term, the people of the state. Um, and that they, they, they cannot compel work. I should say, they, of course they certainly can. They should not compel um, people to serve against their will. Um, so I, I do see that as a potential easy button that people are going to reach for, um, but I would, I would be, I would caution uh, people against it for those reasons. Yeah, yes, sir. And I, you know, I haven't really made up my mind on this one. I just think it's a, you know, it's an interesting topic of discussion because it would be some serious, you know, shock and awe. You know, I, I, I do see that if there was a conscription, right, there'd be a lot more skin in the game. There'd be a lot more care. There'd be a lot more look at our overseas requirements, you know, a lot more eyes on, a lot more questioning, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's a good thing. Right. And then also, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, let's, you know, we have a professional force, right. Would that deteriorate our, our professionalism, you know, you know, we, you know, every formation has discipline issues, you know, it just, it just happens, right. You have, you know, you have some, you have some bad apples in your formation, you know, just, just the nature of the beast. But if we had conscripted, you know, Matt Bigelow, who did not want to be there from the first place, would that amplify the, dis, you know, the discipline issues in, in your formation? Well, you know, maybe, probably so could, could be. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think it's a fascinating topic of discussion. I, you know, I, I definitely see, you know, both sides. I see some good goodness. I see some badness. Right. Um, I think you're absolutely correct that it would force a larger conversation in society about what our military should be used for. And, and I agree wholeheartedly that that would be a positive. Um, and, and so in that regard, I would agree with you that that would be a positive outcome of that for sure. Sir, so, you know, two years missing our numbers, maybe going on a third, who knows. If we can't solve this problem, you know, what do you see as like the long-term effects, the impacts, you know, to our, our military? You know, if we can't turn this ship around, if we can't get the people to for our requirements, the right people, you know, the people that want to be here, you know, what, what do you see, you know, as, as, as the long-term effects? Inevitably, we will have to reduce our requirements. Mm -hmm. So you will know this better than I, what our current requirements are. Um, I think conceptually it's the ability to fight two land wars at the same time. Uh, I, I know I'm grossly oversimplifying it. Um, but I think the impact is going to be we don't we don't plan to fight two wars at the same time, or we don't plan to prevent China from taking Taiwan or dislodge them from Taiwan should they take Taiwan, or we don't plan on you know living up to our treaty obligations uh, with respect to NATO. 
Um, I think the, the, the logical outcome of all of this, of us, us not being able to meet our requirements is the requirements will necessarily have to change. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Um, we'd be at risk of a hollow force. We would have to cut structure. That's just the, you know, the nature, nature of the beast. You know, if we don't have the people, yeah. the requirements are going to have to change and our obligations to our allies and partners, um, our posture overseas, it would just, just have to change. Or we keep saying, Hey, we'll, we'll just keep doing it. We'll just, you know, work harder, do more, <laughs> less. you know, that's it. But, uh, right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. This was, a an absolutely awesome, fascinating discussion. Um, we covered a lot of ground on, <laughs> on here, sir. Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, international relations and foreign policy, which is, which is great. Um, you know, I always, I always love where, you know, these discussions, you know, where they, where they lead to. Um, I know I gave you that info sheet, but, uh, you know, I always, you know, keep my eyes out there and, you know, see where, see where it might, might go to. So this was really fun, sir. Um, you know, try to wrap things up. Uh, you know, I want to get to my fun questions and, you know, these are the questions that I ask every guest, you know, regardless of, of what the topic is. Um, you know, the first question is, you know, what is your, uh, all time favorite book? You know, what, you know, book recommendation. That, that's a hard one. Um, I'll throw a couple out there for, for your listeners. Uh, I, I love Eric Metaxas, and he's written excellent uh, biographies on Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. and Martin Luther, uh, which I absolutely love. More military-related, uh, Stephen Ambrose, Undaunted Courage, the story of um, the Corps of Discovery, the Lewis and Clark Expedition is absolutely fascinating and totally relevant for every military officer. Uh, that mission was, in my mind, the most um, significant um, and consequential strategic reconnaissance mission in U.S. Army history. Um, and there are leadership lessons just abounding in that book. Um, and of course, Ambrose does a wonderful job. So uh, Undaunted Courage by Ambrose, I, I would recommend it for, for all of your listeners, for sure. Awesome, sir. Appreciate that. All right. Next question is, you know, what this is kind of a future futurism type question. What emerging or future capability technology worries you the most? What keeps you up at night, sir? I think the um, the combination of artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles. Uh, I am not an expert on on either one, but you know, you asked, hey, what's going to happen with this recruiting crisis if we can't? Uh, get the people that we need. And I think one of the potential answers is we rely on technology a lot more. And I think AI combined with autonomous vehicles is one of those potential solutions. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I'm frankly kind of freaked out about what that's going to look like. Um, maybe it's just a fear of the unknown, but uh, definitely concerned about the, um, the combination of uh, autonomous vehicles and AI. Yeah, yes, sir. I get that. I get that a lot. There's definitely a, a strong fear out there, and it's you know it's about it's about the unknown. Um, all right, sir. You know, last question is you know any any advice, any words of wisdom for you know our force managers or you know just for you know staff officers. Yeah, the thing that I would say is tell the truth regardless of the cost. I think that as an army, we failed to do that. We've we failed to be honest with each other. We failed to be honest to ourselves and we failed to be honest with the American people. Um, and I think that um, the number one thing that we can do to serve our country 
uh, is start to develop a culture of telling the truth. Mm. And, I, and I didn't say telling your truth or a truth, but telling the truth. Um, I think that that is, uh, is what I would in, encourage uh, younger officers with. All right, sir. Hey, I really, really appreciate it. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. Um, before we sign off, sir, you know, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Any, any final comments? Matt, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to discuss these topics with you. Um, I, I, I know that um, they're difficult, uh, and I haven't uh, left a lot of room for hope, but I will say... Um, in summary, there's always hope, um, and our nation in particular has come back from difficult challenges um, on more than one occasion, uh, and I think that even though the challenge that we have in front of us is very difficult, um, I have no reason to think that we can't overcome Awesome, sir. Well, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt. All right, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes involving discussions with senior force managers and subject matter experts on force management, the defense industrial base, and other national security-related topics.